What's up, everybody? This is Shiragam, host of the Hashishin. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode. I wanted to take a little of your time to discuss the future of the podcast. You know, I started this podcast out a little bit under a year ago, and I just did it because of my love for cannabis, cannabis resin, and because I wanted to have a platform to hear something similar. So when I started it, there was zero expectations. I've really been blown away by the amount of people listening really all over the world and the positive feedback we've received and mostly the value that people seem to find from the interviews in their own way. I'm super thankful to all the hash makers who've made this possible for sitting down and telling their story. And I'm super thankful to all the listeners. You know, I know these episodes aren't short, so you taking multiple hours of your time to sit down and listen to this, whether it's in your headphones, in your garden or at work, means a lot to us. If you have listened in the past, you may know that my wife and I have been funding this passion project really for the past year, and we reached a point where we can no longer do that. So we need listener support to keep this project going. If you do find value to it, if you do want to continue hearing from some of the best hash makers in the world, please consider contributing to our Patreon, which is now live. You can find it at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish i n n all together we've created different tiers for different contribution levels obviously we understand that not everybody is going to be able to contribute or contribute all the time but if we are able to garner enough support we'd love to continue to keep producing these episodes for you because we love doing it we've also created some original Artwork for our t-shirt, for example, that we'll be giving to all our guests as well as our Patreon supporters as our way of really thanking you for your generosity of supporting us and for giving you something that feels like more than just content. At the same time, we still want to keep providing people with free content so all prior episodes and all future episodes won't be locked in any way. We'll keep producing one a month as long as we have enough support. But for people that are bigger fans of the show and possibly have more resources to contribute at a higher level, you'll be able to unlock episodes that won't be released for a couple months. So if that's something that interests you, again, please visit our Patreon. Also, if you don't follow us on Instagram, please do so at the Hashish Inn. Again, the Hashish I-N-N. And the last thing I ask is please don't be like me. Don't want to contribute but put it on the back burner and then it just ends up not happening. There's a lot of times that I mean to contribute to something. I want to contribute to something and I just don't do it. And then life gets busy. So if you want to contribute, if you can contribute, I ask to please hit the pause button right now, go sign up, help us keep this thing going. We're super grateful for you. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy the next episode. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mamir. Today I have Flynn from Wook Sauce Winery and Fully Melted California. Flynn, thanks for taking the time to sit down. Of course, man. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. If you want to follow him on Instagram, you can follow him at Wook Sauce Winery and you can follow Fully Melted at Fully Melted CA. Is there a website or something that they can also visit? Yep, you can uh, find us at fullymelted.com. Cool. So, just, I think it's actually still currently on your story. You had a post up recently 
that was funny and it says something like I'm having a meeting to schedule a meeting about another <laughs> meeting yep <laughs> um, and at the end you, you said you know welcome to owning a small business mm-hmm. so definitely it sounds like you got a lot going on Can yeah you talk about a little bit of some of the stuff that you got going on and why you have so many meetings well partially just the industry right now is crazy you know it's really hard to have clear business plans because the market is constantly changing like for example we just got new regulations put down that we now have to have the warning symbol the california warning symbol on our jar somewhere it used to just have to be on the box or the quote-unquote primary panel as the um Department of Health puts it, but now it's actually required to be on the jar, just like it's required to be on the vape pen cartridges. So that just added another 10 cents to my packaging. It added another touch that I have to deal with as far as someone taking a sticker off, putting it on the jar, and then, you know, making that work within the process we've already created to do packaging. So always there's just constantly things coming up that you have to figure out that you know, are just interesting to deal with with the cannabis industry. A lot of it, too, is just like dealing with vendor payments and when people are actually going to pay you, whether they pay you on time, all these types of things. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. And then, of course, I have a property in Sonoma County that I've been dealing with. And then the permit is in Humboldt, Southern Humboldt. So a little bit of a commute there. And then our cultivation partners are up in Southern Humboldt as well. Okay, so you have a property in Sonoma. Is that, I guess, where it was like kind of the home of the Wooksauce or? Yeah, no, the home of the Wooksauce and um, been trying to get it permitted with the county over the last like two years through just a cottage permit, actually. Okay. Um, just something small scale, greenhouse. I like how Sonoma County's on all geothermal power. Um, and they actually, in their requirements, require farms to be on 100% renewable energy. So I like that. You know, I think it's a, a better way to do agriculture. But sadly, while I was going through that process and getting all the biological reviews done, and I had to get like a native history review on my property because I'm right next to some native land and stuff like that. So the process took a while and they ended up rewriting the regulations and it zoned me out of being able to get a permit at all. So dealing with figuring out what to do next on that one, but mostly just focused on the manufacturing permit and making sure our cultivation partners up north are getting super dialed in on like making and growing, you know, hash specific cultivars. Right. And so that's your new venture, Fully Melted. Yep. And as you mentioned, the cultivators are in uh, Southern Humboldt. Can you talk about a little bit, uh, I guess, how that relationship maybe began and then has developed? Yeah, so it was honestly just really weird. I have three partners that own the business together with me up in Southern Humboldt, and I met one of them at the Sonoma County planning office because he was dealing with some commercial property sales and doing due diligence on that. And he actually just overheard me, you know, trying to get more information about the requirements on a cannabis permit. And like, it's kind of, I had some rewrites on my application I had to deal with and stuff like that that changed some things up on me. So he just introduced himself and said, you know, I have a license up in Southern Humboldt that I own. Right now we do distillate and stuff like that, but we're looking to move toward 
something else because I'd kind of told them, introduced myself, told them a little bit about what I do, what I'm trying to do in the county, et cetera, et cetera. And then he introduced me to one of the other partners and then the cultivation partner up there. And I basically just kind of showed them what I had done in the past and, you know, my thoughts on where the market was. Pound prices were crazy low at that time. So luckily our cultivation partner, Jamra, he saw that, you know, there's huge benefit to starting a brand and like branding your farm or at least a hash company that all your material goes through essentially and not having to deal with like the eventually down you know downward pressure of the wholesale price of cannabis especially if like you don't have a branded farm or anything like that he doesn't do social media or branding of his farm he just grows good organic cannabis in southern humboldt and has you know his whole life so (laughs) right a few questions on that one you mentioned that they were running their material i guess for distillate what I guess, was it that you told him that he, I guess, preferred to work towards something like solventless as opposed to doing it for distillate? Well, a lot of their, so what they had, the model they worked off before was taking the trim from the dry flour that was produced in those uh, greenhouses and stuff and then turning that into distillate. And then they did toll processing for other people and such, but they started that when you know distillate was a lot higher of a price they always you know made very clean distillate clean coas the whole nine right and then it got to a point over you know when pound prices were so low there's so much cheap like dirty distillate out there it was just so hard for them to compete even running that business model and they had gone through the process of getting a license at this facility already so it was in a way a lot easier to step over and just switch from distillate to solventless as long as you know the business model made sense and right. you had the you know cultivars to do it and the knowledge and stuff like that okay interesting do you think at some point that could the same kind of thing could happen in the solventless market as far as like the kind of trend with that distillate like you said like starting off maybe at a higher price point and then oh definitely i mean i think as far as solventless extraction goes right now from a like technology and scale standpoint there's a a lot of you know forward progress still yet to be made considering where most people are still using like either 32 gallon buckets or 20 gallon washers and you know bags for the most part it hasn't been like industrialized like it could be yet although I th- we're working on that as well, although I can't talk about that too much. But yeah, so coming I, together, coming together, I think you were on another podcast recently, Propagating Purpose. Yep, shout out Fabian. Yeah, good um, dude. And you know, it was a it was an interesting listen, and there was plenty of talk, uh, kind of about that. And you brought up Whistler Tech, yep, and kind of how they're working on mass production, but also like a formula to be able to like you say scale it up yeah and more like you have easily recreatable scenarios and more pharmaceutical level of extraction equipment so that you know with all the testing and stuff nowadays and in a facility probably running 12 you know at least eight hours five days a week you're gonna want you know stainless steel and things that are easy to keep clean and not gonna be hugely you know, a huge point of labor for you to pay your staff just to, like, 
keep compliant essentially and right. healthy and put out a good product that you know is good for people to consume and not full of mold or mildew or whatever right so yeah do you feel that when it reaches that scale quality that's being able to be produced now at maybe a smaller scale will be something that you can replicate i think so honestly in many ways because so much of it comes down to just recreating that same process at scale as long as i think you have the proper equipment and you know how to treat your material and what you're doing with the resin and such, it should essentially be the same quality of hash that comes out, possibly even higher just because some of the more, I guess, scientific techniques you can apply to like post-production hash to clean it up and do other things to it that, you know, will start being brought to the industry could even make it a higher quality than what we've seen up to now. Although... I don't know, man. There's some crazy good hash I've been seeing over the last, like, two to three years. I don't know how much better it could really get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, like, what I wonder, you know? It's, like, at that, that big of a scale, you know, you hear people that are producing that, that quality resin that you're talking about right now. It's, like, so much goes into it, right? It's, like, hands-on. And so at a big scale like that, it would either take, it almost seems like a lot of people kind of being there and checking on these plants, like, all the time. Or, like you're saying, there, there could be some advancements, whether it's like in the growing or, like you said, in the post-production that are going to have to come along that, that might help make that easier somehow. Yep. And I think just more people like understanding what cultivars to grow to put toward, you know, the, what looking at when you plant a clone, what's the end goal for that product? Even before just like, okay, we just harvested and we have all this stuff to sell. You know, which is kind of the old way of doing it because you weren't, the farmer wasn't necessarily as focused on like, well, these 10 strains are pretty much all going to go in the freezer because they're just for hash. And then this, you know, these two hoop houses over here maybe are for flour this year. And that's what's going to be our X, you know, 200 or 1,000 pounds to fill all our purchase orders for the year. Right. You know, not overload our flower department with having to deal with like 2,000 pounds because we're going to freeze half of it, do hash, and then do the other half as flour so we're not as like saturated with our inventory. Right. So kind of changing the pace a little, you grew up in Minnesota, yep. right? And I've heard you talk about like wearing the Frenchie cannoli shirt in high school. So I'm curious like, A, how did you first get like exposed to that, you know, and then be being in Minnesota, what was some of the, I guess, first hash that you tried? Yeah. So I guess the way I got exposed to like cannabis as, you know, something in my life was just literally like learning about it in school and then going home on the internet and being like, what's really going on here? Because I feel like I just got told a bunch of bullshit. So that led me down the path of just like, you know, looking into cannabis as like a medicine and more of a holistic healing device and definitely something that can be abused as with anything, you know, in the world, of course, like eating or anything, you know right. what I mean? It's like there are irresponsible people and they'll choose irresponsible things. But for the most part, I also had like bad sleeping issues when I was in high school. And as a kid, I couldn't really ever get great sleep. Even though I don't get amazing sleep now, it's definitely better than before, and I think cannabis has helped with that a lot. And I also used to get 
really bad migraines. Like they'd take me out for like a day or two sometimes and I'd just be, basically couldn't do anything but just lay in bed and like hope to fall asleep. So that helped a lot. I usually only get like maybe three or four a year now versus like two or three a month sometimes back in the day before I started using cannabis. So that's kind of what started me down there. And then weirdly in Minnesota and Minneapolis where I grew up, I think sophomore year of high school or junior, they actually decriminalized cannabis in the city up to 28 grams. So there's kind of like a weird, very liberal, like, you know, there is somewhat of a cannabis scene there. And then as far as hash, I always saw great hash on the internet, like on YouTube, saw Frenchie stuff, you know, just a bunch of other hash makers getting going in California, Cuban and stuff like that, up in Washington, just on the forums, like Northwest Green Thumb, way back in the day. Although maybe that was a little more toward college, the beginning of college when I moved out to Seattle. But um, saw great hash, and then I only could find, like, just Moroccan black hash brick slabs in Minnesota. And it was good. Like, I liked it. You know, it definitely gave me kind of the introduction to like what pure resin was versus like flour right which for me specifically i really liked that more it was more up my alley for like how it affected me and all that type of stuff so that's kind of how i started down the path of just like loving hash and you know weirdly eventually now it's something i do every day and i'm honestly crazy blessed to say that yeah, no, I mean, it's cool. Uh, and a lot of the hash makers that I've kind of talked to feel, you know, the same way, like like lucky to be doing this. And, and so that's cool. But, you know, it's funny that you, the way you kind of brought up the the, ha- the first hash that you tried, you're like, oh, it was just this Moroccan, like basically old world hash. And so, you know, before that was like a good thing, right? Like it's coming all the way from Morocco, making it to Minnesota. Yep. And now it's like, Old world hash is kind of seen as uh, I don't know, right? It's maybe not as positively or like pos- in a positive way as it used to be. I think in California and like the West Coast of America, definitely. But I mean, all over the world, like every so many countries, still like it's almost like in some countries in like South America or Europe, it's like weird to smoke flour. Like they pretty much just smoke like hash and tobacco still. Right. And it's like old world hash for sure. Yeah. So I think in California, definitely like the old school hash for especially the dab culture and like the right. all that type of thing. It just like doesn't vibe with that. But I think it definitely still has its place. I like it a lot. Yeah, I do think it has its place. And I think there's a market for it as well, you know. And it's interesting that you kind of brought up like South America and in the sense that a lot of the world, especially kind of in the East, right? They've always viewed um, the cannabis plant more through the resin. And in the West, it's like you and I growing up more, we're probably exposed to like the buds or the flowers. Definitely. Of these plants. And so, you know, I remember for, me personally like looking at the herb was part of the experience and like you know what does it look like and what color it is and like the different pistols and like all that stuff like played into it as to where how kind of Frenchy says like over there the resin is what people looked at or at least like for example he was looking at right he's not looking at like 
what the plant looks like or anything. Definitely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a lot of a function of like literally just that inter-country trade that was going going on from, you know, forever really. Hash has been a part of human history all across the globe for a long time. Right. You know, and a lot, I feel like a lot of the hash in like Europe and stuff, it is grown in the Middle East and it's just way easier to get hash to where you need it when it's hash versus flour <laughs> and way more profitable and all that type of stuff. Just made more sense. So it just became like a function of function of the culture almost from the need of like honestly importing that much resin and can and like having that much demand for like cannabis right yeah i mean it definitely condenses it down so like you said you know uh, it kind of makes logistical sense as well but it's interesting that even in that case kind of making the hash or being like the hash producer if there's that added value to it like now it becomes also more valuable because it's been turned from the cannabis plant into like this mass and kind of what you were saying about branding a hash company now i mean in a way that's what i feel like is bringing the value to the cannabis like you said when it the prices go way down right if you have an established hash brand that's doing the process well that can kind of retain its value just because people know in essence what they're getting yeah and i think in a lot of ways like Hash keeps, I guess, the customer happy from a quality standpoint in that you know that, you know, it's just resin and it's good resin so that when you buy it, it's a consistent product and that you, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, the quality of like flour varies a lot more than like a good melt or a good rosin will be relatively you know, you'll be happy with it versus so many times I feel like I've seen flour, had flour that I'm like, dang, this looks really good. smells good. And I go to smoke it and I'm like, oh my God, this is nothing what I expected and it's not good. Yeah. So I like throw the joint out or whatever. So yeah, I think it allows that just like almost minimum bar of quality. And then you know that, you know, you're going to get something that's worth paying for versus just like it's hard, especially in the recreational market right now. I feel like people can't really like smell the flower, like it's all prepackaged and stuff. So what you end up getting is like usually a letdown for the most part. But with hash, you know, it's just resin and can be well preserved and has a better shelf life than flour in many ways. I think so. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has uh, a bunch of positives. I feel, and you know, do you feel as a grower yourself, farming for or growing for resin is different than growing or how maybe some people approach just growing for bud or for flower. Yeah, for biomass. Yeah, I mean, I'd say more of that variance comes down to like the individual cultivars you would choose to put in the garden, depending if you're trying to go for flower or trying to go for hash or, you know, mix if you're going to like chop tops and then do like second cut or whatever. But There is also definitely, I feel like, growing techniques that, you know, just produce a better resinous plant versus, you know, what people may push from, like, a fertigation standpoint to produce more biomass with, like, maybe pushing a little more phosphates or potassium to put on more flower weight, and they don't maybe take um, as much account into, like, the resin density 
and making sure that if you're going to be stacking on more plant matter cells, that that resin density basically stays the same while you expand the bud instead of just putting more biomass on and then all the resin heads spread out a little bit and you're really not producing any more at the end of the day especially when you make hash when you're producing flour it's different but in a lot of ways it creates a lower quality product for the consumer because you just have like a less resin per bud and at the end of the day that's what we're all growing even flour producers um, whether they realize it or not you're growing resin and then just, you know, basically giving it to the consumer in a different way. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, that's kind of like the magical part of it, in my opinion, where like the biomass, as you call it, is necessary for the resin. But the resin is also what makes this biomass in particular special to people, you know. So it's kind of an interesting interplay mm -hmm. between those things. You brought up genetics a few times. This is something that you and I were talking a little bit before the recording. Now that you're working with Fully Melted, you have essentially moved over some of the, I guess, cuts that you were had been working with as Wook Sauce Winery over there because they are hash strains, right? Definitely. I mean, that was like one of the biggest things I went over with my partners when we first were introduced and like looking at working together and, you know, what who's bringing what to the table and how's this all going to work out as far as, you know, basically me knowing that cultivars are so important for hash making specifically, I just told them straight up, like, you guys need to grow my cuts because right. I can tell you that I know that we can hit five to 6% with the cookies and cream. I know we can hit five to 6% with the 24K. Okay. We can hit numbers and then that allows us to have a much more comfortable business plan as far as moving forward because the biggest struggle that I've heard from peers that have been working in especially the white market nowadays because of all the taxes and fees and slow cash flows and stuff it's been really really hard to find material that's viable to put on the market because you need to f crush it you need to literally hit the ball out of the fucking park like every time and then even then you're like barely making money so if you if you're not you know, if you're you used to in 215 and with just the different, I guess, business models that used to exist, you could make like a two to three percent return worth it to run into hash and you could pay the farmer and the hash maker and everyone would be happy, etc. Now it's like three percent barely pays for like just the labor put into the hash and then paying the farmer back essentially with where the market is for um, stuff as far as the wholesale rate on the white market and like all the fees and taxes associated with that. And you have to have, you know, higher liability business insurance and you're paying, you can't have any 280E write-offs compared to like a normal business. So it makes things exponentially difficult if you don't have a very tight ship and you're not running strains where you know you can hit numbers that you need to hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it sounds like it's pretty tough. And so, like you said, without all these things going right, including the genetics and growing them out excellently every time, like, that's kind of a tough, you know, thing to navigate. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, practices? I've, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of your partner who's growing. Jamra. Jamra, okay. Yeah, yeah some of his practices, I mean, has he been 
I'm assuming he's been growing up there for quite a while. Yep, he grew up in Southern Humboldt. He started growing at a young age, I guess is what I should say. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he uh, has pretty much always been involved in the cannabis industry. He has, he basically just does organic soil beds and greenhouses up in Southern Humboldt. And he used to grow mostly for flour. But now that he's, you know, moved toward hash, we've been, you know, fresh freezing almost everything. And we've been moving toward like a pretty much just fresh frozen model of business. Right. Yeah. How has he found going from, you know, growing for flour and being used to drying and curing to now chopping and putting in a, you know, freezer? I think compared to drying and curing, he likes chopping and putting in a freezer because honestly, it's a lot easier to deal with. It doesn't take up as much space. It's cheaper as far as a labor standpoint and then also like just a time standpoint. You can literally chop a whole greenhouse, freeze it, refill it, and not have to wait two weeks. You know, you can start processing that cannabis within a day right. or two. You know, it freezes overnight almost in a chest freezer. So. Right. You can start cranking out right away and get those cash flows hopefully coming back sooner than later compared to like dry, cure, trim, jar, etc., etc. Um, yeah. for the white market. And then also with the flower market on the in the shops, you always have that harvest date on there. And people really want that freshest harvest date. So okay. if you don't really keep those things moving and aren't really like on the ball, you can fall behind and then your product just kind of sits on the shelf because everyone's like, oh, that's old weed, which is exactly what's happening in Oregon. They have a back supply, Washington, Colorado, they all do. So it's something that you have to be conscious of, even though people are just starting kind of getting into that situation it's something you're definitely going to want to keep an eye out for in the future right yeah back to some of like the practices are you guys using i guess teas yep when it comes to feeding the, the organic soil and are those practices that were just like common up in those areas and now are like getting maybe repopularized um, yeah, I mean, he's always been just kind of an organic soil beds in greenhouse kind of guy because in especially in Humboldt and with greenhouses and outdoor, it makes so much more sense to be on an organic soil um, right. regimen. It's a lot cheaper, easier in many ways than dealing with like paying for nutrients and the fertigation, you know, plan and stuff like that. And I've even heard from other, you know, kind of regenerative farmers, that it's just a lot less water as well, you know, if the soil uh, is being taken care of well and, like, you're, you're covering it with whatever it may be, hay or, mm -hmm. or whatnot, that water retention really kind of reduces even the amount of water that you have to use. Yeah, definitely. The more organic matter in a soil, I think, the, like, bigger the water bank and nutrient bank, essentially, of that soil is, for sure. So I think it helps a lot with at the end of the day, almost everything, it makes a better product. You know, I've been trying to work toward getting the ancient dank out to get us on like an all KNF regimen for uh, just fermenting and cool. doing the whole nine. Like, shout out Todd Resin Ranch, he used to do up at the Mendo Hideout and created some of the best full sun, full season hash I've ever seen. Yeah, and that's a, a good point that you bring up as I'm curious. So, when you were doing Wook Sauce, that I'm assuming was all indoor? Yep, all indoor, all grown by me, washed by me, single source, yeah. And now it sounds like this is greenhouse, 
And so do you see any difference in the resin coming from the sun, essentially, as opposed to the indoor? I personally think the sun and that full spectrum of light and that still controlled environment of a greenhouse produces probably the best resin, all else equal. I will say that greenhouses, especially depending on how the property is set up, the roads, the beds, there can be definitely a dust factor where you get dustier plants from some greenhouse scenes than you definitely, I mean, indoor is obviously going to be a lot cleaner. Yeah. yeah, For the most part, although you'd be surprised sometimes, (laughs) but, um, yeah, definitely. I'd say that's like the one advantage of indoor, but then with all the power usage and just kind of like other drawbacks of that. And especially since I think, you know, with the prevalence of rosin and stuff maybe you don't produce as much full melt but you can still produce a really high grade solventless product out of greenhouse that i think has a more full like terpene profile and then honestly a more full resin head too full of oils just because in many ways that's like a defense response as far as i know from the plant for just dealing with like uva uvb rays and different you know photo spectrums and stuff like that right yeah, just making it more complex. Yep, almost. exactly. And uh, giving it all the tools and energy it would need to produce, you know, what's naturally made and bred for over the last, you know, thousands of years that's existed on the planet. Yeah, yeah. It's more of a natural expression. Yeah, definitely. You know? You've talked about some of the genetics you've been using, and I know that you've kind of known for the cookies and cream. Definitely. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of your thing. Yeah. And specifically, you have a cut of it that, and correct me, sorry if I'm wrong, but uh, Dino, right? Yep. So it's Dino's cut of the cookies and cream, and I know, unfortunately, I guess he like passed away recently. Yes, he did. And so, can you tell me about your relationship with him, and then a little bit about the cut? Yeah, definitely. So I guess I first, I went out to Washington to go to college, Seattle back in the day from Minnesota. And, you know, I was just like running around trying to get in the industry. I'd gotten a job at like a hydroponics store, luckily, and then was just basically trying to find a spot to grow. I'd been making hash, bubble hash and BHO for a while and just needed a spot to grow because I saw that a, to make good bubble hash, I definitely needed to grow myself. It was so hard to find trim that would produce like six star fucking, well, even six star for back in the day, which isn't even close to what we're like looking for now. But I just quickly saw that growing was a necessary thing I needed to get into and learn how to do to produce like the best resin. Because okay. for me, I was just always like, when I got to Washington, weirdly, I had met Dean's son in a dispensary and I'd bought some 25U like full melt and then I went home smoked it came back the next day and was like who the fuck made this hash this is the best fucking hash I've ever had in my life but like as much as I could at the time being like a poor college student freshman stuff and he was like oh well actually me and my dad made this hash you like it and I was like fuck yeah I like that hash that's like the best that's the best hash I've ever had and I you know Loved to chill and hang out, and we just ended up becoming homies. And then I got to know his his pops and stuff. And his dad actually 
Shout out Dean, man. Really would not be anywhere close to where I am today without him. He got me set up with my first landlord who let me grow it. You know, it was a pretty hood house. But, <laughs> you know, got robbed definitely a couple times. But it was great because it got my start and I was able to, you know, just basically build off that and literally gave me the cookies and cream cut, the white fire OG cut. Pretty much every good hash cut except the Dosi Papaya 7, which is just a seed run that I did and selected myself, was from Dean. Like, I would not have been able to even come close to producing the quality of hash I had if not given those cuts right away and just, like, had good cuts. I knew did good bubble hash, and then I just needed to learn how to grow the best plant I could. Right. Yeah. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about it you know i guess let's start off with like how many times do you think you've grown it holy shit man like individual rooms of it would be hard to count because up in washington i did a lot of like i did more small rooms rather than california it seems like everyone does these like huge like 50 or like 100 light rooms and people are blowing it out pretty hard down here versus like the way i learned to grow is more in like Eight, eight to 12 light rooms type of thing, or even four light flower rooms. And with hash and being single source, you know, it still made it very viable to do something like that at a small scale. Right. So you like to break the rooms down a little smaller? A little bit. I think it allows for like me to have more rolling harvests and like not this huge labor point where I'm like, because I was going to school at the same time too. So it was nice for me to like break rooms up so that I wasn't like bringing down like 30 lights at one time right. or whatever it's like all right four this week four two weeks after that and then it's just like a little more consistent too as far as like you don't have that feast and famine like a lot of california people especially that just do full sun full season that like one run a year i do not know how i mean i would be so i like couldn't go home bro i'd have to put a 10 out with the plants like i need to know those things were like gonna come in and come in right and come down at the right time and not get fucked up right not get ripped off like man it's crazy to me that type of i guess growing and just like everyone seems to do it yeah. but to me it's crazy coming from washington and more like the indoor scene where you have like four or five six crops a year even if you're really like cranking shit out so out of like one room so it's nice yeah i liked it it was a it was a good place to learn especially because power was cheap up in washington compared to california and then you know shout out goat organics and turp hunter too Back in the day when I first started growing, they would wash a lot of my material, too, that I just I didn't have a cold room or I just didn't have the money yet put together. I was more putting it into the grows and stuff. So they were able to churn out a lot of really good stuff under medical for me up there for my material and definitely, like, were the first people to show me what true, like, full melt six star was in person. I remember buying some super dank lemon OG back in the day from the homeboys up there and yeah, yeah that was what definitely set me off on like i need to learn how to grow and make this product because right. this is what i fucking love right yeah so yeah so it sounds like hash was definitely like the first motivation but then like wanting great hash was the motivation to want to learn to grow more so uh, or, yep. or was it all just like a drive just to do something in the cannabis world? 
No, I mean, I think it was definitely hash at first because honestly, I never really, I loved growing and I definitely wanted to start growing, but I got into hash like immediately. And I always knew that if I was to start growing, it was for hash. Like I'd probably turn it all into hash no matter what, just because I guess to me, just doing that, you know, learning about the plant more and all these things, it was like. As much as we're growing flour and that's what's normal for everyone and how I was introduced to cannabis and stuff like that, really we're focused on the cannabinoids and the resin and the resin head and the terpenes and all that good stuff there. And if we can remove the biomass, that was like one of the few things I guess I find about cannabis that maybe isn't like the best thing. Like smoking the plant matter, it creates a lot of tar and it's maybe harder on your system, especially compared to like just eating cannabis or vaporizing it or vaporizing the resin even so you have like as little plant matter as possible and you get as much cannabinoids as possible yeah and i definitely feel like that's kind of where things are trending to where people want you know the most like refined or like clean product that they can find and, and that means just like the least amount of contamination as possible whether that's like plant matter or, or whatever it may be that seems to be kind of like where it's going towards right mm-hmm. and why i can see how something like maybe pressed hash it's not that there again that, that there's a market for it but i don't think it's going to be as popular as for example something that's considered like a six star or like a rosin and maybe that'll change over time i don't know but would you say that's kind of how you see it continuing where people uh, are looking for cleaner and cleaner products? I think so. I think at the end of the day, I mean, right now, honestly, I think products like Frenchies and Nashas and Temple Balls and things like that probably, well, I actually know they sell better on the white market just because they're like a lower priced product for the consumer. Right. Taxes are based on percentages a lot of the time, so that doesn't have as high of a kick. For a $20 product versus a $70 or $80 product on the shelf. But I think in the future, there will still be plenty of people who love that product and love it for just its traditional, I guess, cannabinoid structure and taste and like hash spliffs and all these types of things that are more ingrained in a part of, you know, certain cultures across the world. And then, but I do think in many ways, the individual expression of the cultivars is most or best expressed through like either fresh dry or live rosin fresh frozen material type thing because of that retention of the cannabinoids and their like original expression of the cultivar right yeah and i mean i think traditional hash definitely has something to it you know like the way whatever is happening to it on a chemical level yeah it almost feels like like a wine right or or something where you really are getting a more kind of complex flavor than maybe you would have with the resin being i guess younger yeah lack of a better term no definitely it's interesting to see how things change over like a really even like quote-unquote white hash or like my my style of hash i guess you'd say with wook sauce and fully melted and stuff versus frenchies if you take that hash and like i've left cookies and cream in the fridge for like over a year you come back to it it tastes totally different 
like insanely different than fresh cookies and cream because all those terpenes and stuff have broken down into like basically different terpenes at that point. So it was really interesting to, I've only really done that once because I usually just smoke it all. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It doesn't make it a year. Yeah, it doesn't usually make it a year, that's for sure. I've got to be pretty damn busy for that to happen. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. Do you feel like, you know, having controlled environments is kind of what's been a game changer in that sense? Because, you know, with traditional hash, it's like, yes, maybe some of these regions were cold at some points, but it's it was inconsistent or maybe they're, you know, it wasn't cold in that region. And so now with being able to like work resin in cold environments, that's kind of a whole game changer. Like, Definitely. I think it gets you the closest to like literally picking off the resin head from the plant and placing it in a jar. I think dry sift is that. That is truly, honestly, the goal of dry sift. Like almost just if you pick the head off the plant, put it in a jar. Right. But I think it just ice and water makes it so much more available and economical on like a more mass production st- scale and stuff like that. It makes it more available, and it still doesn't use you know chemicals. So I like that. But yeah, I was recently talking to Adam, simply Adam. And he still air dries. Yeah. And does a really good job at it. Oh, yeah. And Definitely. I bring Killer that fucking up. hash. Yeah. yeah. Adam, Adam is always pumping out fire. Definitely. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because he told me that he thinks that your hash is the best freeze-dried hash he's ever had. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing to hear. I appreciate that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's good I, to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and I bring that up because if you're that good at, you know, rocking a freeze dryer, I definitely want to talk to you about your tech. And, you know, obviously you can give away as much as you want or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, freeze dryers are a whole thing of its of their own, right? Yeah, so definitely. Have you always been a freeze dryer guy or No, yeah, I used to rack dry. Um, Back in the day for not that long, probably only like six or seven months. And then, honestly, shout out Barry's Bubble up in Oregon. I just hit him up, and he had seen a freeze dryer like on his story or something. I was just like, yo, what's up with this thing? And he's like, oh, you can just go buy it here. It works fucking great. And I was like, oh, I now don't have to have my hash sitting in my cold room, and I can't wash in there really because then it's too much moisture in the air. And looking into just like the what a freeze dryer does with how low the temperature drops and how it sublimates, you know, solids to liquids and things like that. To me, it made a lot more sense in that you're using a lot less power and you're using so much less space to create. And you, you know, the whole process, you can wash and have a finished hash the next morning. Like my cycles are usually only like 12 hours, 14 hours long on like a full freeze dryer. Like a pharmaceutical eight tray can fit usually anywhere from like eight eight hundred to twelve hundred finished grams of hash, and it should take anywhere from like twelve to sixteen hours of start to finish to okay. to be fully dry. And I think in a lot of ways the freeze dryer speeds things up, but it allows you to definitely fuck things up easier. 
okay. um, than rack drying because you have that slower process. There's a little bit more like slower change in the resin and you get to see things happen a little slower with the rack drying and it just has a different way of doing things than the freeze dryer, which, you know, just boom. Right. It's just like you can really mess things up. So I think a lot of the freeze-dried hash it's like a tool. You have to learn how to use it correctly. And if you don't use it quite correctly, it can produce, you know, a subpar product comparatively to if you had rack dried it, which is where I think a lot of people where who go to a freeze dryer and then maybe find that they're not producing the same quality of product so they go back to rack drying cuz they just don't like it. If they I guess just played around with the the system a bit more, tried to like learn about what does this tool actually do to like dry your hash and like how do I apply that concept to what I'm doing? Right. I think, you know, knowing how to use the tool that you're using is crucial. But I would say, you know, from a cultural standpoint and almost like just a hash history standpoint, rack drying will probably never die and should never die. It's just like almost like a different way like of producing, you know, wine or beer or whatever. They have all those weird little like, oh, this is in oak barrels or this was right. aged for like 20 years or whatever. Like it's just a different what mode of production. And I think if you still have the intention of just creating a high quality product, then more power to you. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Again, I think there'll be like all weird kind of small niche markets, right? Include air drying. Um, do you, so what was the learning curve on the freeze dryer outside of like, you know, getting kind of help from maybe uh, Barry's Bobo or like getting pointed in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly about learning kind of like how much hash you've put in there and knowing how to adjust your basically fine. The freeze time is mostly just like make sure at the beginning, there's like two basic settings on the freeze dryer, three, okay. the shelf temperature, the freeze time, and then the final dry time. Okay. And basically there's a sensor in these units that up to a certain point, it will get it so that there's like, it's sublimating I'm not exactly sure, honestly, how it measures it, but it basically can tell when it's close to dry, but not maybe not all the way dry. Okay. Um, it's gotten, like, most of the water out. So then that final dry time is where you play with, and it's strain to strain, too. Some strains need a little more, some need a little less. It depends. Like, drier resin usually needs a little bit less of a dry time because okay. you're not dealing with as much oils and terpenes and stuff, okay. whereas more... Greasy resin, you probably want to kick it up a, a bit more given the same amount of hash in there. Okay. Um, and then I guess it's mostly just playing around with that and learning where your resin isn't over-dried. And if you press rosin, it's not like super stable or anything and you still have good terpene content and stuff like that. Because I do believe that resin in many ways like flour should have not zero water there should be somewhat of a moisture content okay. in, in the hash. But very small, you need to be conscious of mold, mildew, all these things, obviously. But you're trying to retain, you know, I guess almost just a preserved resin head, and that shelf life needs to be right. And if it's too dry, then the moisture, you know, osm osmotic pressure basically happens, and moisture gets forced into the hash as it sits out, or if it's too wet, the opposite happens where osmotic pressure pulls water out of the hash and can create different, like, caking or different consistency changes in the resin that you might not want. Okay, so you actually like, and that's probably a very fine line to walk, 
but keep a tiny bit. Everyone, if you have properly dried hash, quote unquote, it's just like properly dried flour. You know, you can there's a there's still moisture in there. Yeah, it's not like it's not it. barren dry resin. Right. That that would be something that would be. When it is too dry, you can tell when you dab it. It's very harsh on your throat. You can feel the like caustic nature of the just terpenes like burning off and the resin burning off and the dryness of the vapor like on your throat versus when you dry it a correct amount, you get more of a smooth hash intake and maybe a little bit of like you feel that expansion in your lungs on the exhale, but you don't have that like burning aftermath of like a dry resin dab. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I mean, I didn't really, I guess, think about that, but. And it's hard to know if you don't like literally have the same resin and you've dried it two different ways because you're the one, you're the one washing it or whatever. Like it's too hard to tell because when you just buy hash, you don't really know what happened previously to compare it to other hashes. So yeah, just one (laughs) of those things, I guess you kind of testing hash, get, get that finer points of, you know, how to tell what's going on with your resin just yeah. by like consuming it, I guess. Yeah, and that's the cool thing about being able to to talk to tash makers, right? It's like, unless you're doing it, like you said, almost firsthand, it's, it's hard to know, you know? Yeah. You brought terpenes up a few times. Do you feel any terpenes are lost or any more terpenes are lost in freeze dryers than would be, for example, in a microplane air dry situation? I think if you are holding correct shelf temperatures and all these things, then no. Um, I think, you know, just the time that rack drying needs and all these things. I think it's, a, I mean, I haven't done testing on this, but as far as I can tell, the differences are minimal when done correctly. It creates a little bit different looking of a resin, I think, in the jar. Like if you look at El Daggy or like Cubans, like like stuff that is done rack dried and microplaned received and stuff, they the hash looks different than like my hash that's freeze dried. Right. But in my opinion, I think, you know, all else equal, they're relatively the same product and more of just a preference point for the consumer as to whether they like air dried or freeze dried and, and probably like comes both. down brand to brand yeah maybe they like some people who freeze dry and other people right. who rack dry and some people who rack dry they yeah. don't like and some people yeah. who freeze dry they do like or whatever and that's the cool thing in a way that i like about it is that everybody has their own little way of doing it and some people might like some better than others like you said or like them all you know, mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's. I like them all. Yeah, I like, I like them all, too. all hashes. Honestly, like, it's weird. And sometimes in the like, my side of the hash culture, like the white hash or full melt hash, you find people talking down maybe on the more traditional style of hash. But to me, it's it all has its place, and I love it all, and I consume it all definitely too. Yeah, as kind of a new hash maker, not that new new, but kind of this new school of hash making, freezing to you, uh, is it what you've done from the beginning? Fresh freezing the plant material? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Just when I was kind of coming into the bubble hash scene, at, you know, growing up, it was it started to be all about, you know, fresh frozen just because you could create a higher quality hash, honestly. All else equal, for the most part, every strain will produce more full melt or like a better full melt from a fresh frozen product. And in my opinion, without hanging the plant for that long, freezing it right away, you have the most 
terpene retention possible for the plant material. Okay, so outside of that kind of terpene retention, what are other some of the positives as you see to freezing it? Or like why is freezing it making a better hash outside of just the terpene retention? Well, like I said, I think it allows the plant material itself to not get broken down as much while you're basically water sieving the the material so that when you have a hydrated plant material that's fresh frozen and you put it in to wash, when that rehydrates like like a like a leaf would be, it's a little harder to just like rip up or break down versus like a dry leaf you could literally just turn it into a powder in your hand you know really easily so that same exact kind of process happens when you're washing and to create the cleanest resin possible i think that the fresh plant material does better to holding up in the wash for not getting broken down and putting basically plant material in your hash right yeah Um, i think that's the biggest one okay cool and as somebody who's you know, worked on your own material as a single source with hook sauce. Can you give me the breakdown of like what the proper way to prepare fresh frozen is once you go to harvest the plant? Yeah. So usually what I like to do is buck down the big fan leaves off the plant and create like just single branch spears basically that don't have a lot of offshoots to deal with. And then while you're breaking down all the plant material, you want to basically be as careful as possible to just not touch the buds at all. If you can clip off all the buds so they have a little stem on the bottom to hold, and then you just bust off all the calyxes down, and people can look on my page for pictures. There's pictures of frozen bags and stuff, and you can kind of get an idea of like how I break it all down, even head nugs, usually about like thumb size is good depending on the cultivar though you you basically just want to remove the stem and keep all the plant matter intact as much as possible you don't really want to like chop it up you know remove it from the stem so that things are the resin head is as as undisturbed as possible okay and if you can you know when you're doing the final bucking of breaking down the buds break it down over that bag that you're going to put in the freezer because doing it into a bucket and then transferring that into a bag, you're putting a lot of resin on that bucket (laughs) and you'll feel it at the end of the day. If you put, you know, you scrape your finger on that fresh tote you might've washed with ISO or, you know, brand new bot and just wiped down with water. There's going to be a ton of resin on there. Like almost guaranteed. Yeah. So you might as well catch all that in the bag. And then when it's frozen, it'll hopefully come off the bag and into the water and then you catch it as hash. (laughs) Right. No, that's smart. I mean, you know, if you're going to, because you're not losing it at that point, obviously. Yep, exactly. So, well, cool. Well, thanks for kind of, you know, breaking that down. Can you tell me a little bit about your own kind of personal washing style? And are you bringing, is that part of what you're bringing to Fully Melted? Is that aspect or knowledge? of? Uh, yeah, definitely. I was um, trained all the staff to do all the washing and rosin pressing, packaging, the whole nine and you know luckily all my partners up north understand that i despite being young have like the experience in that stuff and they just let, really let me take the lead and if i said i needed mini splits in all in the rooms then they were like great we're gonna put mini splits in the rooms because you need it that temperature to deal with packaging you know you need it 
can't on a 90 degree day in Garberville, I can't be having our packaging people trying to package rosin that's like soup almost, you know, because it's so hot in the shop. Like, we got to have that control. So, right. Yeah. That's definitely something, you know, a big part of what I bring to the table for that company as far as like how to process at scale, how to process efficiently, how to do like test batching properly and figure out how to be the most economical in the way that you're washing and the end goals of like the different products you're creating and creating the least labor for you and doing all that and doing things, you know, as efficiently as possible. Yeah. That's definitely something I'd say I take pride in just as a hash maker and, you know, someone who's just trying to create a hash company. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned training people. Are you still kind of actively hands-on washing up there or are you just having to kind of keep so busy, like you said earlier, with so many of the other aspects that you're having to focus more on that than like being in the lab, for example? Yeah. I mean, right now I'm, so much of my time is spent just trying to secure like purchase orders, sales, getting the brand going because I started a whole new brand, right? which has been definitely a more difficult road in the beginning, but I think, you know, going to be more worth it at the end of the day. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd say it's been, it's been good as far as letting our staff, you know, they've been trained well and they've been crushing it the last like definitely a few runs of not needing much direction from me they seem to handle any type of issue very well or just realize issues right away right which is great because you know there can be missteps in production and having those days where you lose yield is definitely not something you want to experience on the white market if at all avoidable right now yeah for sure in any market i think but definitely yeah definitely on the white market right now <laughs> yeah so you know when you were on the other podcast, uh, you talked about something that you kind of brought up today as well in a different way, but, you know, you feel like solventless is, you call it in its infancy. Yeah. Right? And so, for example, with the staff that you've trained now, are they still, is it all still being hand-washed? It's all still being hand-washed because we're getting all the R&D done on our final system for a much larger scale, lower labor system. Hoping to have that tied up in the next, like, two weeks, I think, honestly. But, yeah, And I know you can't really get much into it, but I I guess more my question is, like, and this might have to do with what you're doing, but do you feel like automation is the future? Yeah, especially if you... I mean, right now, it's like the amount of labor that goes into production is insane for pretty much anyone doing bubble hash when you're talking about comparatively to other any other type of hash making really there's so much hard labor and like hand washing like we hand wash all up all up north right now and yeah. bu- in buckets like the style that i do you know uh, under wook sauce right so that is a grind and to do that on a commercial level more so, like an everyday, like 25-day-a-week production schedule, that's going to, you know, that's tough on somebody to do that five days a week. You know, I I'd never had gardens where I was washing five days a week. You know, there was breaks and weeks where there was no washing to do or we'd just, like, build material up to, like, do big day, a couple big days of washing or whatever. So 
I think, you know, reaching those economies of scale for production will help lower the price of solventless and then allow more people to experience like what really good hash is actually like and hopefully just allow more people to really participate in like this new hash culture that's starting to come come through in cannabis and it's something that, you know, really hasn't been there before. With, right. you know, the prevalence of, like, dabbing and just consumer education around, like, how are you really consuming your cannabinoids and, like, are you, you know, just all of those things about people wanting, looking at how they're consuming it, how can I consume it more in a more healthy way, what type of products do I want to be putting in my body, you know, there's not really been any long-term studies about, like, solvent extracts or even solventless extracts and the high cannabinoid content of consuming that all the time you know but i think if we can take out and just keep it to just the cannabis plant i think that's the best option for sure right in my opinion yeah on the note of like cannabinoids i know you guys have been working with fully melted uh, in conjunction with blue river terps yep and you guys both have been posting a lot of kind of this collaboration that you're doing yeah uh, can you talk about a, the collaboration, and then B, I find it interesting that, like, you're doing Fully Melted, but a company like Blue River, for example, is using, I'm assuming, your material yep. to make some of their products, and I'm curious as to the why. I guess from a production standpoint, Blue River Terps does a lot of special things with rosin or resin once it's already produced right and me as a producer in the past i pretty much have always just once i turned it into rosin i put it in a jar and it's done or once it's resin i put it in a jar and it's done i don't really deal with a lot of the like post-production of the hash because it's like i got a i just more interested in growing and just making more hash, I guess, and stuff like that. So yeah. that's also what we've been really focused on with Fully Melted is just creating like a really high quality fresh pressed rosin. Maybe I think we're going to do some wet batter in the future because I like the shelf life of that and the shelf stability of that product. And then, it, you know, Blue River does so much stuff with taking a rosin and separating it out into its different parts and removing the fats and lipids and reintroducing the terpenes and creating different consistencies of products that it made a whole lot of sense for us to just throw them as much material as possible to create those super awesome products that they're able to create that I frankly do not know how. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, they seem like uh, a company that's like, I almost equate it to like a chef who's like a deconstructionist. Or like they're just like taking it apart and then bringing it back together in their own way and I've heard Tony Rizzuro talk about this idea of like that being the way to possibly make things proprietary, right? Like you're not going to be able to own a strain or, I mean, maybe you will, but I, I think this kind of idea of like having a certain way of doing things and doing it in the particular process or step might be the way to, to actually do that. So I find that interesting kind of what they're doing. And then, like I said, I find it interesting kind of how you're working with them. And yeah, I could totally see where you're coming from with that. So, but you know, I'm curious, like, will they have the same flavors that you guys will? Or for example, do they work with one flavor and then fully melted will kind of do its own thing? You know, I have talked with 
Tony a little bit about this, and I think for the most part, because they do the deconstruction, some of the flavors will be the same, but different consistency. Right. And then also that he does a lot of blending. So for example, um, I don't know if I should talk about this, but I will. No, yeah, no, I think I don't think he'll mind. We've been working on producing a rosin vape pen cart. Okay. With like no cut, just just rosin. And okay. still have it taste good, like a like a proper dab, um, right. with like you know the low temp, low temp battery, low temp cartridge, and the whole thing. And yeah, I think that's going to be coming out relatively soon. I know they've been working on getting the correct consistency for the cartridges and stuff like that. And we they wanted to make sure the testing came through clean. The cartridges were all you know no heavy metals right. being leached into anything or anything like that. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I'm super excited about as far cool. as something I would never be able to create. And then he's able to create, you know, blends between like our sour diesel and the cookies and cream to create like a sour lemon dog and, you know, add some lemon dog terps in there from Bon Vivant or something or someone yeah. else. And then create just totally new blends and consistencies and products that I would never be able to come out with under yeah, just the fully melted line. That's very cool. One of the things that you brought up that I found funny is uh, I saw you guys were kind of bringing back that sour D. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, no, I love it. Honestly, Drama had just been growing a bunch of sour D already, so we froze it all and decided to make bubble hash out of it, and it did, did pretty good. And I think it has a great, super, super gassy flavor. Super old school, like New York sour diesel, if you know what I'm talking about with that. A lot of more old school smokers might know. Um, right, but yeah, it's uh, it's a good one. Although I don't know, the yields aren't amazing on it compared to like the hash strains that I have. So I don't know how long that one will be sticking around, honestly. So if you see it, you might want to grab it up if you're a diesel fan. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny because like the diesel, the sour diesel used to be kind of, I think, the standard at first, right? Oh For yeah, it's just a classic chem dog sour. We're like. You know, two of the biggest hash strains I feel like people made for like traditional hash in America, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and you know, earlier you brought up the percentages in relation to being able to turn a profit essentially for a company. How does that work? You know, you, you hear people like all the time talk about this is the return, this is the percentage on that. And I know you're a numbers guy, so can you kind of give people a better idea how that works in the sense of like, is it material, is that based off like frozen weight? Does that matter? I mean, does it, how does it, the, the water content translate or get factored in? So I guess most hash makers talk about, usually when you hear yields that are sub 10%, sub 7%, that's fresh frozen yield compared to the fresh frozen weight. So the hash weight divided by the fresh frozen weight. And then a common rule of thumb most people abide by in the industry is like fresh frozen is five times as heavy as the same material dry would be. So basically if you take that percentage, multiply it by five, that's what you would get if you washed that dry. So 5% return would be like 5% return on fresh frozen would be more commonly like a 25% return on dry material. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And what's kind of like a number right now that, Makes sense. Makes sense. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> the highest number you can achieve, <laughs> honestly. Um, but no, I think for where the market is right now, and I mean, I guess it depends on, you have to kind of work backwards for 
from what you think you can, you know, wholesale the product for essentially. And then also you have to remember that with bubble hash, although, you know, you have 5% overall returns, not all, it's not all the same products. You have to look at how that breaks down with each cultivar, like with cookies and cream, on a 5% overall return, like 3 to 3.5% of that could be full melt. Whereas other strains, maybe only 1% of that is full melt. Right. And then you get 4% of like 2% of 5 star that you have to squish into rosin, and then like 2% of more like B grade rosin or like edible grade type thing. So you really have to look at the product differentiation that's created when you do bubble hash because it's not like other extracts where you create just like a single product out of it. In many ways, you gain the most value from something when you create multiple products from it because you're a va- you you can, I guess, get the value from everything that it should be. For right. the high, you know, the really high, the crema, the super melt, and the really good rosin, you can ask that little higher price because it is a very noticeably higher quality. Right. And then for the other things, you can make it more price-friendly for the consumer, something that's a little easier on the pocket, but still high, still high quality in terms of the inputs that were used, but maybe not as high in the terpene content or the cannabinoid content or something like that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I saw, funny enough, again, I think, Maybe even today it was on your feed that you guys had like a bunch of rosin, pressed rosin bags that you were, I guess, maybe looking to someone who does ethanol extraction to use. Yeah, I was like, one of my employees was like, so uh, we have like 30 pounds of pressed (laughs) bags in the walk-in, like what are we going to do with that? And I was like, man, yeah, we should probably get someone to like wash that with ethanol because I guarantee you there's a ton ton of good cannabinoids left in there right. honestly yeah that we should be getting out and getting to people and not just wasting by any means so yeah 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 so you know you were talking about kind of the different grades obviously there's like you said different plants are going to produce different kind of ratios of like these tiers right yeah and so full melt being almost like the top tier yep and a lot of people now are te- are turning that full melt still into rosin right Yep. And then there's a second tier, which is like what's not full melt that's also getting turned into rosin. And then a third tier that I feel is kind of maybe lacking for now is the whatever's going to make edibles. Because edibles mostly you see are either CO2 extracted or sometimes butane and then distilled, right? Yep. So do you feel that that's kind of a part of the market that's lacking and that will grow or not? Really? Well, I think it's hard for an edible company to base a business model off like the third grade of bubble hash just because it's so lacking in quantity in the market that you would just, you'd be like chokeholded by like trying to find cheap enough material that was still viable to put into your edibles, but that was also around in enough quantity that you could you know, work at the scale you needed to work to like build your business and feel like if you got more purchase orders and you got, you know, you were growing your business, you could actually fulfill those sales versus being like, oh, fuck, you know, like I'm really just running out of material here and not going to be able to grow as a business. So from uh, just that standpoint, it's hard for some edible makers to make that work. And then also like a dosaging of cannabinoids, the distillate is very consistent. It doesn't necessarily maybe add as much like 
flavor because it doesn't have plant material in it and stuff right. like that. So it's um, just allows for, I guess, a little bit easier of a business model. But I will say there's companies like Kiva. I think they're moving to all bubble hash in their edibles because the laws changed a little bit around the homogenization needs of the actual edible like there used to be laws where the, each edible couldn't vary more than a certain amount and it was such a tight register that it was hard to make bubble hash like compliant technically or you could have issues with it you know and then you have a whole batch you got to fucking deal with and right. it's burned basically and stuff right. like that so with the, that law change, I think that'll make it a little easier for people to work on a business model like that. And I do think a lot of people who eat edibles would rather know that this was made with ice and water and not chemicals. Right. Because at the end of the day, we're all trying to move away from chemicals in our food, I feel like, no yeah. matter what. you know. So yeah. why wouldn't we be doing that same thing with our cannabis, for sure? Yeah, and you know, I honestly just feel like a lot of it is going to be education. And like, I don't know... You know, if that education is there yet, like, for example, with the food, right, it, it took some time from people to move away from maybe practices that weren't the best or... Yep. It's so much about consumer education right now. I think there's so much, like, misinformation in the marketplace and lack of information that it's really hard for a consumer, especially just an average consumer, I guess, to feel educated enough to the point where they're not going to just buy the cheapest vape pen in the store because they feel like no matter what they're buying they don't a they probably don't know what they're getting and b is they just think it's all relatively the same right just different packaging or branding and stuff so yeah and you know that brings up an uh, interesting point which is like price point and again from hearing you on the other podcast you talked about something interesting which was, you know, the price of some of the other solventless products on the shelf. And then you brought up some of kind of like the BHO prices, you know, in a more traditional business landscape, I guess you would have like re market research that's being done on this type of stuff. In the cannabis industry being still pretty relatively new in that sense, how are you going about that? Or like, are you doing your own, I guess, research when it comes to that or is that something that can be like outsourced or how does that, I guess, work? Yeah, I mean, there's not really any great market research out now that I use whatsoever. It's mostly just like literally being involved in the industry and knowing that, you know, I literally know most of the other people that produce hash. And I right. definitely pay attention when they put out products. I look at the price point. I see what it is on the shelf. You know, you got you definitely have to do your due diligence when you're thinking about, well, this is the tier product I'm putting out, and then, okay, I think this is comparable. So, like, let's say, I'd say my biggest competitors on the white market right now, not that there's any, you know, bad competition. I think at the end of the day, there's only a couple uh, solventless people on there right now, and the more hash people can get, fuck yeah, the better. Right. But the biggest people I'd say I compete with for the same, like, type of bubble hash is 710, Papa Select, Frosty, and then there's definitely a bunch of more like smaller local companies that I've seen popping up in California doing like maybe in-house brands or stuff like that that actually is surprisingly good. So as far as that goes, I definitely do have to be competitive with those people. You know, no one's going to want to pay above and beyond a price point 
for a similar quality product. So I definitely have to know, realistically, I have to be at the same or lower price than right. other people in the market at the very least, especially compared to like 710 who does a lot of indoor product that's, you know, more desired by many people just due to its cleanliness and stuff like that. They don't necessarily love seeing a greenhouse product that's a similar price. Despite me thinking that, you know, resin is resin, and at the end of the day, I think good resin should be priced accordingly, I right. guess. Yeah. And you know what's kind of funny to me about water hash and price is that I think from the outside in, it's like, it's like, well, it's just buckets, water, ice, and material. Like, why is it, why is it so much more, right, in comparison to a hydrocarbon or a different type of extract? And again, being a numbers guy, you know, what are some of the things that go into this that the average consumer just has no idea that, like, is a factor in in making water hash the price that it is. Yeah, I'd say the two biggest factors by far are labor and then also the variance and yield that people see from bubble hash. So that price point, although needing to be somewhat consistent on the market, needs to work for a large enough amount of cultivars so that people actually want to produce bubble hash and it's not just all cookies and cream right. or all GMO. Right. Because those are the only viable things to make into a product at that price point. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I guess other than that, it depends on, like, uh, just overall, there's a huge amount of labor that gets put into, like, washing even, like, 9,000 wet grams of bubble hash is, like, you know, a couple hours, very involved in the cold room, a lot of, like heavy work that honestly if you're like a small person would be pretty impossible to do like me todd a lot of the hash makers i know that wash like that we're big dudes like i'm i'm six two like you know i luckily have the ability to like lift a 32 gallon bucket work bag and like move it over to another bucket and like make those things efficient whereas like if you were five foot tall and 90 pounds like that would be really fucking hard for sure so There's that, and then when you're comparing, like, okay, what does it take me to run 10 pounds of fresh frozen bubble hash or put it in an extractor and run 10 pounds? Good lord. (laughs) Just so much more time and effort is put into that bubble hash. It's crazy. Yeah. And like you said, there's also the big factor of it being, like, unpredictable, you know? Oh, yeah, because as a single-source person, luckily, when I've wash new strains or like tested cuts or seeds and stuff like that i mean when you hit a one like a half a percent return or one percent you definitely lose a shit ton of money right and it sucks but if you were a grower and you handed that material to someone and that's what came back i mean i would be like someone's stealing from me or someone you like this is ridiculous like you fucked this up basically like i would not it'd be hard to believe like you know, this cannabis could produce 1% bubble hash. But literally, I've had that happen where it looks great. It would have been great flour, but the resin head, the cuticles, too thin. Everything ends up bursting in the wash. There's too many stocks. You end up just, like, literally washing it all away, and you are left with, like, next to nothing. 
right. and you're just like, oh my god. So that happening enough times, and I feel like the genetics over the last three to five years have really come around to producing resin-focused genetics for good hash, so that has helped lower the price from, like, I know bubble hash back in the day on the shelf was, like, commonly above $120 for sure. Whereas now, I think people have been finding good rosin and bubble hash for anywhere from, like, 70 to, like, $100. Right. So the price, I think, has definitely come down, and as I think it will continue a bit in the future, I kind of see stabilization after taxes level out a bit and the marketplace kind of shakes out a little probably at like 50 to 60 dollars on the shelf okay for like top quality like bubble hash and rosin yeah i mean that's pretty reasonable yeah and yeah i mean i guess the tough part is just like all the taxation and how that kind of even varies from place to place oh yeah like if i want to hit like let's say a 70 dollar shelf price i have to wholesale for like 23 to 25 dollars and then i have like my packaging costs associated with that so i'm really bringing home like maybe 10 dollars on that and then i pay taxes so it's just like good god you know there's like out of a what ends up being to the consumer like in oakland let's say you buy a 70 dollar gram it's you're going to be paying almost 90 dollars out the door because of then the 15 percent excise tax the 10 percent oakland tax etc on top of that 70 it's like man like that's tough that's tough to be able to like reach the amount of consumers you want to reach with your product and still run a profitable company that can actually survive and pay employees and pay for the farmer and pay for you know, a good price for the farmers so that they're not getting screwed over and that they're not losing money and paying everything up front to produce this product and then literally getting paid shit on the back end, which I think is something that, I mean, happens commonly in the agricultural industry. And if we can stop that trend in the cannabis industry sooner than later, we're all going to be a lot better off. Because at the end of the day, the farmer is what makes all this work. And if those people just start falling off and producing lower and lower quality, we're all just going to have nothing good to choose from in the store, honestly. And if we could all conveniently just walk into the store and purchase really good hash from people, I think we would all prefer that. If we could all, you know, run businesses like we would be, just normal businesses and stuff. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, again, I primarily know you from Book Sauce. Mm-hmm. And I know that's, is it kind of like on a hiatus right now? Well, yeah, I've been, the other reason I guess I started that new brand with Fully Melted was because Wooksauce was always like single source and that literally, like I did all the transplanting, watering, like I had help with like taking down rooms and stuff like that. But, you know, I did all the gardening and washing for the most part. Whereas with this new venture, although it's my genetics and they definitely you know, take direction as far as how to produce better hash strains. I didn't see it quite as like what I would call single source hash at that point. And I was saving it more because back way back when I had hopes of having my own cultivation permit in Sonoma. And I mean, I hope to have my own cultivation permit in the future. And I would like to bring Wuxos back, get it on the shelf and produce, you know, that, super high quality indoor 
full melt resin again, but yeah. sadly, uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah, and I'm curious, like, what are some of the challenges that you face trying to do that? Um, mostly just the fact that I like own a property that got zoned out, and I yeah, now have to that. move and deal with. I mean, it takes a lot of due diligence to know that the property, the real, the piece of real estate that you're gonna, you know, move into is gonna be. I mean, I already got zoned out of one. Like moving and making sure that I can actually get a permit on the next one, and I can basically. Ideally, walk into just buying a permitted farm and have it be turnkey just because that person wants to get out of the industry or just right. doesn't really know how to run a profitable business or whatever. So ideally, I think that's what I'd like to do in the future. And I think I just, it's more waiting for right now, like on a economy scale, like the real estate market, I think is going to correct in the next couple of years, which will allow farms to be a little more easier to acquire definitely and hopefully have all the infrastructure i still want like already in place so yeah yeah. just more waiting for the right time hopefully to make that move and stay focused on you know the permit that i do have with the manufacturing thing and making sure that goes well and you know all the staff gets trained and that's that's a lot of my time and focus right now so trying to get it if i if i had the farm in sonoma man yeah, well, I would be crazy like, busy, do, honestly. The- yeah, I don't know, honestly, how I'd get that done. So in some ways, it's like it needed to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, everything works out like it needs to. And not to kind of like harp on the point, but you brought up something that I found real interesting. And yeah. you said that part of the reason that you guys zoned out, it was because it was native land. What does that Oh, no. Or- I had just had some troubles with like getting the permit approved because when I first submitted it, because of its cottage status, I like it was a, what's called a zoning permit okay. versus like there's a minor use for most counties. It's structured a zoning permit, which is like the usually almost over the counter. Like you just go in, pay for it. You have it. Okay. It's almost implied that you can do some such as thing on your property. It's mostly just you need to pay the fee to do it. Gotcha. So it's that type of thing. But then... They ended up being kicking back like, oh, well, now you need a biological report. So I had to like line up a biologist, very specific type of report to make sure that I didn't have any endangered species existing on my property. The plans that I had to build stuff weren't going to create issues for any species that might travel through my property. Frogs had to be able, like I had, like on the biological report, it had said like the fence needs to be like raised two inches off the ground so frogs can like pass through the fenced area freely because there's like an endangered red-legged tree frog in Sonoma County and then there's also like some spotted lizard that's endangered and stuff like that. And it's it was interesting to me learning about all that because technically you need to get a federal permit from the federal government if you have like the vineyards all in the last like three years got sued actually by an environmental agency because none of them had acquired permits for this salamander that exists pretty prevalent in Mendocino and Sonoma counties Okay, and the permit from the federal government is $200,000 an acre so these 20, 50, 100 or you know even more acre farms that never acquired these permits had huge issues when they got sued and it and it was turned over like yeah you guys never got these and you were definitely supposed to right um so 
I don't really know how any cannabis farm technically in any county right now could have acquired any type of permits for any of that. So there's like a lot of weird things like that that you run into like when you're going through the permitting process that get to be like, well, I wonder I wonder how they're going to get that figured out. Or like the fact that so many people don't outright own their property necessarily and they have a loan from a bank, but then they also have a cannabis permit. Right. Like how does that liability fall on the bank and would they even allow you to have that mortgage anymore if they knew that you that was a cannabis permit operating on that, you know, piece of right. land basically? Like that puts them almost hand in hand with a federally illegal crime. So I don't know. I never <laughs> ever like to think about. Yeah, I never really wanna feel like it that's uh hopefully not gonna get fleshed out for a while and people just keep having no issues, but I'm like, man, if that if those things ever start popping up, that could be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of California, you were telling me earlier it's been three, four years you've been here now. Yep. And I guess you're liking it, I'm assuming, since you're still here and oh, you yeah. built a couple businesses here. Yeah, no, I mean, from Minnesota, I've just always felt like California and the coast was like where I needed to be in a lot of ways. And then moving to Washington, I loved Washington and loved Seattle. Loved going to college there, learning how to grow there. The culture up there is really cool. The cannabis culture, I like it. It's not as elite. It doesn't have the elitism that a lot of the California market has, which I don't love. But, man, I love living in Northern California. Like, what a paradise. Between Sonoma County, the Mendo Coast, Sonoma Coast, and then Humboldt, like always driving up to Southern Humboldt and Garberville and Arcata, Eureka area, like every day I'm like, good Lord. Like, the just living in this area, I just like feel blessed and like connected to just everything that I'm doing, you know? I like it a lot. It's definitely my favorite place, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I've been kind of hanging out up here. I was in Arcata and then went down kind of the coast. And, yeah, I mean, you know, it's visually beautiful, but it's also just, like, kind of peaceful. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's a cool vibe. So I can definitely understand that. Yep, as much as much of the bullshit we deal with in California, I feel like there's a reason. <laughs> right. It's a pretty crazy, amazing place to live, despite all the uh, ridiculousness you have to deal with, honestly. Yeah. it's uh, Yeah, there's definitely some challenges you guys face here. Yeah, between the traffic and the, and the state income, the crazy state income tax, the crazy real estate prices and costs of just living in California, it's like, yeah. That can get that can definitely get to people. Can get to you sometimes, but luckily, usually you can just step outside and then you remember why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's not far away. Nature is, is everywhere around here. It's just the cities are kind of cramped, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm glad I live up in Sonoma County, man. Having to go into Oakland all the time and SF to deal with like our distributors and sales and stuff is uh, not my favorite part of what I do for sure. <laughs> How do you see, I guess, the growth of concentrates and do you think it'll eventually kind of dominate the market? Yeah, I mean, from in my point of view from like an economics perspective in many ways flour is like the most expensive thing to produce all else equal shelf life is shorter 
It's harder to store. It's hard, it's more labor intensive. There's more scrutiny from a consumer standpoint on like bud structure and like all these different things. Whereas when you turn it into just like removing the plant material and you just have that beautiful resin. Yeah. So all those factors to me in the future almost point toward like flour being less prevalent and more expensive and hash being really much more common because of the shelf life, the consistency factor, the volume reduction, all those factors are so economical in so many ways. And it's already been fleshed out. Like we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast in like Europe in that huge demand of, you know, huge fields of plants being grown from Moroccan hash to basically be imported into Europe because all of those factors, you know, basically played into that decision-making. And once our, once our cannabis expands, I think, to that level and the culture gets to that point and consumer education gets to that point, I think hash will be, in many ways, like much more prevalent, especially like vaporizing, vaporizing hash to just... Because there is, a, you know, as much as eating cannabis and topicals and all that, there is definitely something to be said about vaporizing and inhaling hash. So we've talked about the genetics. Do you feel... To some degree, even though genetics are improving for resin production in general, that it's creating like even more of a bottleneck? Hmm. You know, in many ways it could be. I think it definitely could be. But in some ways it could widen as far as uh, just what becomes a viable type of plant to grow. When you, when you don't have to be as focused on like what that finished bud might look like you know we might find that there are some not great looking strains when you dry them for flour but they produce like some crazy resin that you only really capture through extraction so in that way i think it could open the field up and in many ways with the commercialization of cannabis that bottleneck is gonna occur but in so many ways we put ourselves there anyway with just only breeding for like thc heavy cannabis right and in many ways now we're starting to find out about all these cannabinoids and terpenes and other things that the plant produces that we may want to look into breeding for plants that you know basically only through extraction you can tell produce like nominally higher amounts of like thcv or cbg or these different cannabinoids that may be super useful for you know other things right so in that sense i feel like with where the industry go is going that will almost open up a lot of the genetics now as far as like what companies are doing that right now and all this type of you know phylos kind of stuff coming up recently i think we as an industry need to be super careful about how we go about doing that but yeah that being said i feel like if we hadn't entered this more like advanced cannabis market we might have never discovered anything that wasn't like high thc almost because that's the thing we feel when we like smoke the plant yeah and i mean the other thing about that is the whole like it having to be go underground and like people who are growing inside and taking that risk it's like you want to pack a punch right yeah you got to sell that at the end of the day to pay those bills for sure so you have to produce a product that the consumers want and with a just a 
black market drug like that's mostly just based on experience of the consumer right. and not necessarily like testing or, you know, yeah, a, a label on the back with ingredients like you might get with food or something like that. Yeah, and you get, a, for example, a high CBD strain and, exa- like you said, the, the user, like... You'd feel gypped right. back in the day if you bought, like, a f- <laughs> weed that was high CBD because you'd smoke it and you'd be like, it was okay, but I didn't get fucking high. This shit doesn't get me high. You know, you'd be, you'd be pissed. Basically, yeah. Now people are like, fuck, give me that CBD weed. That's all I want to smoke. You know what I mean? I don't even smoke THC stuff anymore, so... Yeah, that's yeah, it's one of crazy. the fascinating things that's happening, I think, with cannabis is like by opening the legalization kind of, it's opening the science. And I think the science of it is, again, like you said about solventless at its infancy. Yeah, so that's kind of exciting to, to think about everything they'll learn about the plants and mm-hmm. the capabilities and stuff. So uh, just today I was reading about, I think Harvard Medical just figured out something of maybe like a flavonoid really affects oh man i can't think maybe colon cancer oh wow which is something that not many people survive yeah it's a super high mortality rate one yeah Yeah. colon is no bueno yeah sure and so it's it's a small number of the population but yeah like you said the mortality is high yeah yeah super high so you know just something affecting something as serious as that it's super interesting to see what will come from cannabis research. Definitely. Definitely. On your feed, on one of the posts that you made, you said, don't aim for success if you want it. Just do what you love. Believe in it, and it will come naturally. I kind of wanted to ask you what that means of like kind of your philosophy about, I guess, not only cannabis, but like your role in the cannabis industry. Gotcha. I mean, I guess I would say for me, it just means like if you follow what you love, you're going to put your best foot forward and you're going to put the most passion into your work and you're going to take the most you know, point of pride from producing the best possible product that you can. And in many ways, I think that's, gonna lead to like the most fulfilling type of job or lifestyle or like you know life you could live versus and you know I studied economics and finance and kind of saw the industry that that is and the lifestyle that a lot of those people lead and stuff and you know there's definitely happy people in that industry but for the most part I think it's a super unfulfilling industry that doesn't lead to a lot of like self-worth for what you're creating for the world whereas with cannabis and hash and just following your passion for what you love, I feel like that that aspect comes through a lot more in what you do. And at the end of the day, if you are good at what you do, I think you will be successful in your own definition of that and be happy as a person. You yeah. might not be like the richest person in the world with a G5 and like whatever, what have you. But at the end of the day, you know, I think you're going to enjoy what you do every day and you're going to be happy. So that's the most, the goal, the goal of life yeah. <laughs> in my mind. And what's, I guess, success to you? I'd say just that, you know, being happy in what you do every day and then also living a fulfilled life where you can help other people out, you know, along the way of life and achieving those goals as well. You know, I think 
in the simplest way, life is just about, you know, weirdly posted about today, attitude and gratitude. You know, yeah. no matter where you are, if you can have a good attitude and you can have gratitude for what you do have, I think you're going to be 10 steps ahead of anybody who doesn't, no matter what other type of measurement you want to put on anything, whether it be your bank account or whatever, how much, how many cars you own or how much you work or your businesses or whatever, what have you, you know, none of that really matters above and beyond that, that, you know, core value. Right. And who have been kind of some people that have been influential in your life, I guess, to navigate all that? I mean, I definitely say my family and my dad, he's always been like a really even keel dude and really just shown me like more the important things of life and, you know, what really matters around like just family and creating a life that is fulfilling, not based around like income or money or having nice things or whatever, what have you. But also, you know, knowing that you got to be responsible and you have things that you're going to need to do for the people you love in your life and you know having the financial freedom to do that isn't necessarily bad by any means right yeah yeah absolutely kind of on a different note i wanted to ask you like do you consider all types of extracts a type of hash or is hash a particular thing to you to me personally hash is a particular thing kind of similar to cuban grower ozzy like to me, when you say hash, it's bubble hash, like resin, not even rosin, really. To me, like hash oil would be like the more proper term to talk about, like BHO or even rosin or oil, just more heavily refined, I guess, extracts. Okay. But from a cultural standpoint and the industry and stuff, I think hash is a general term for bubble hash, BHO, CO2, anything that would be an extract also, basically. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how there's kind of different views on that. And, and like, at one point, um, everybody will find, like, a common ground as to what everything, like, means. Yeah, the nomenclature and all the terms in the industry right now, I feel like, in many ways, are, like, a huge hindrance to just proper consumer education as to, like, what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> when people, like, like my partners up north and people that maybe weren't involved in, like, hash before, like, when I'm explaining to them, like, okay, so there's 120U, 90U, you know, live rosin, hash, all these different things, and they're like, God damn, this is another fucking language. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. This is right. confusing. Like, you really, you you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I got to explain microns now, and I have to explain, oh, yeah, well, making bubble hash isn't just making one grade of bubble hat. We're doing a lot of separation here, guys. Right. Like, we're creating a lot of different products. Here's how we talk about those products. Here's how we talk about those consistencies. Here's all the words for, yeah, these different, like, wash. What's a wash versus a pull? You know, what's a first, second, third pull versus, like, want wash to me a wash is like a set of material and then pulls make up that wash like you do four pulls over a wash okay so there's all these like almost yeah just a whole vocabulary set that someone needs to become acquainted with when working in the hash industry right now and part of that is because we have so many different terms that like mean the same thing right like full melt six star 
you know, full melt hash, Jermichael. Like there's all these terms over the years that are just like literally mean the same thing. And if we could all just start speaking the same language, we'd probably have a little bit easier time communicating. Right. But on the flip side of that, I also think that's like a huge part of our culture in that like you first start hearing this stuff and you like don't really know what's going on. So it like sparks your interest to ask or like become educated. And I think as long as we have the correct information for people, great, you know, then I think that's a, I think that's a positive part of our culture for right. sure. I've asked maybe one other person who's been on this this, but is making hash technically an extract? Oh, to me, it's a separation. Once you go to rosin, then you are extracting something. Because to me, at that point, you're taking something on the inside and bringing it out. Like you're extracting it, you're removing it, etc. Whereas with the resin and the water sieving or dry sift even, it's more just... Uh, you're physically moving one thing from one place to another and you're not really taking anything out of anything else. You're just taking it off or, you know, separating it a little bit on a physical level, but not a, any type of chemical level or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I would say it's, it is, it's a separation more than an extract but again okay. that comes down to like us as a culture deciding that's just how i think of it in my head realistically yeah. right you know we as a culture and as a community need to decide like and as hash makers and stuff you know we need to all decide like how do we talk about this what are the proper terms like i got you know i saw someone a couple weeks ago post something about oh this single source hash when all they were really referring to was these, I separated hash into like different parts and they all come from the same source. But to me, if you say single source hash, you mean grown by one person or company under the same umbrella and washed and, you know, made into hash under one, right. one umbrella. Right. And I, you know, it's like, I get where that person's coming from because those words in conjunction make total sense for what he's describing. Yeah. But it, to me, it means something totally different. Yeah, there's not a standard for sure. No. And I think it's very confusing for everyone to some degree. Um, yeah. But especially people that like don't have a lot of knowledge about it to begin with. Mm -hmm. And know? I mean, in that way, I think it's a little bit more like, you know, the wine or alcohol industry in that someone might not right off the bat know the difference between like a Pinot and a Cab or like you know, a rosé and all these different things. But once you just gain some knowledge about it, you know, then you do. And then it's just part of, you know, a culture, like a wine culture that exists, right. you know, in Europe and America and across the world and stuff. And there's even different, you know, vocabulary for each of those different cultures across the world within wine. Right. And in many ways, I think hash will, you know, reflect that model in the future. Yeah, I could see that. Speaking of cultures, you know, the name Wook Sauce Winery, right? obviously there's some reference to a Wook. Let's talk about Wooks because I think I'm just yeah. not cool enough to understand what a Wook is. So maybe you could kind of like 
I guess, break down what it, yeah. who or what a Wook is? So, I guess the Wook Sauce Winery brand came about more so because, honestly, I existed up in Washington. Okay. And I was making hash up there, and there's a lot of glass blowers up there. Okay. And more... I guess that side of the hash and cannabis culture and like the festival kind of vibe and people and stuff like that and traveling and all that led to like just a nomenclature of like wooks, like referring to like, you know, these like big bearded dudes (laughs) with like carrying dab rigs and constantly torching up like hash hits at festivals and stuff and just like basically like wooking out. And, you know, that definitely reflects in a lot of, like, glass culture up there with, like, people like Storm and Norman and, like, Quave and Pat Lee, Perp Skirp and stuff like that and Swiss Perk. And just, I guess, in many ways, like, glass culture and hash culture are so intrinsically tied together in that way because of the, like, early days, like, the only way to smoke, like, good full melt and oil is, like, hash master cuts. And, like, you needed to know the how to get the right rig to like actually smoke oil correctly and stuff even though it was terrible back then but you know it's they've almost evolved evolved so intrinsically together and i do also find that like a lot of a lot of the um glass blowers and people involved in the cannabis industry like growers and stuff like that tend to like more of a like high quality bubble hash right and solventless extract because they find it's like the just what they prefer from an experiential standpoint. So, all right, yeah. cool. Yeah. Do you see? I guess there being uh, space for kind of boutique hash making companies in the future. Definitely. I think in many ways, like I was kind of talking about earlier, it's going to reflect like the wine industry in that. Right. Once we have interstate commerce and all this way easier licensing and taxes and fees aren't so crazy. I think it would make sense to make us, you know, quote unquote, small batch, which in the future might be like literally 2000 grams, which is right now that's, you know, for a lot of people, it's a relatively big batch of, you know, one type of melt or one skew of product. But I think, you know, when you're talking about national demand or possibly international demand, like a small batch could be like, you know, five to 10,000 units even. So, right. Yeah. It allows for the definition of small to change and then also be a little more viable for like boutique having the demand to make like a boutique run worth it because rarely and like if you talk to people in the alcohol industry and stuff that have a company that does you know boutique stuff that's not really what pays the bills it's the low end like cheaper stuff that keeps the lights on and then the boutique stuff is a point of pride for the business owner and like a high quality product that's definitely demanded but it's hard to like have a business model solely based on that right do you equate legalization to corporatization it's yes right now it's definitely because of the hurdles it takes to get into participating in the legal market in this, in, I think in the sense of the question you're asking, yes, it leads to just needing to take on big investors holding to, you know, different financial and business goals, depending on what those investors want. I think it definitely is right now leading to more corporatization, but like anything, it'll be a pendulum. You know, it'll swing heavy one way 
and then hopefully it'll come back. Like we're seeing that a little bit in the alcohol industry in that the small breweries that have been popping up over the last like five to 10 years that have been super successful in competition with those huge brands like Corona or like, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think that a similar developing of the market will happen in cannabis for sure. Cool. I've heard you say that kind of, I don't know if it's a slogan necessarily, but the mindset you have with fully melted is solventless for all, you know, can you talk about a little bit about kind of your philosophy? And I know you kind of have yeah, uh, throughout the interview, but you know, how does that mindset separate you from other people that are, that might get into this market? Well, I think, you know, anyone in the like cash industry right now would fully admit that there's a big part of the hash industry that runs off a more like, mm, I guess, elitist side of like just, you know, designer, high priced things, this, you know, just showing off wealth basically, which is not something that really vibes with me as a person and not why I got into hash. Um, right. A lot, I feel like a lot of people maybe hopped on the solventless train because they saw those high prices and saw an opportunity to make a dollar or whatever. And they didn't necessarily have like the passion for hash and weren't doing it before like bubble hash was, you know, those crazy prices. So as far as that goes, you know, I don't love that side of the industry, but for me, it's more like I think back to me as a college student and like getting being lucky enough to find like good bubble hash and finding goat organics and terp hunter and being able to experience that good resin and see what high quality cannabis can like do for someone. Me personally, my goal is to obviously like run a sustainable business and grow and be profitable and all that stuff, but right. still try and get solventless and high quality cannabis products basically into as many hands as possible and make it as viable option on any budget you know, given the restraints that I have of production and stuff like that. Because at the end of the day, like we were talking about with the philosophy of life earlier, like to me, I love cannabis. I love hash. And if I can put more hash in the world that people appreciate and love and enjoy and like adds value to their life and quality of life to, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever they use it for, then that's what I'd love to do and keep no, doing. That's cool. You know, I mean, not only do you want to bring quality to people, but also a good price point. So that's definitely, I think, something that people would appreciate, you know. Uh, so awesome. Yeah. Kind of winding down, you brought up a few people. I know you brought up Goat Organics a few times. And who are some of the people that kind of in the hash world you've met that are kind of memorable to you or people that you've really built like a relationship with? Definitely Todd Resin Ranch, who you interviewed a couple couple podcasts ago, yeah. I believe. And shout out to Todd and his wife for allowing us to do the interview at their house today. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, Todd has been great. I feel like a lot of times there's a big, a lot of ego that can exist in the hash industry between hash makers and collaborating and working together sometimes can be not great for people and how they work but I've had no issues with Todd whatsoever and he's been I think we've both added to you know the whole process that we each brought to the table prior to knowing each other so we both definitely I feel like learned stuff from each other and it's been like a really great relationship as far as working together on some things in the past and all that type of stuff 
And then also Jibs, Trichome Heavy Extracts. He's he's a dude I've been following for a long time, and I just respect his work ethic and the hash he puts out a lot. Man, yeah, Goat Organics too, Terp Hunter, just for, you know, back in the day, like really showing me what's up with hash and allowing me to even have like a peek into the what was going on as far as like the new style of hash that was starting to be made by people with like fresh frozen and super full, you know, full melt was like only yeah. five stars back in the day. Like five stars as high as it got right? <laughs> and all that good stuff. And yeah, man, I'm super stoned right now too. So I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably definitely forgetting people. So I apologize for that, but yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, you know, you can only name so many people, but yep. yeah. So those are some of the people that, you know, everybody, it's always interesting to me to hear like people that have kind of stood out to people in their careers, you know, so far. So that's interesting to hear. It's a tough question. Like I always say, but if you had to choose three of your favorite hash breakers, who would that be? And let's actually take Todd out of the equation. Ah, damn it. <laughs> that was my go-to easy one. Okay, three, three hash makers, not including Resin Ranch. Um, I'm going to say Frenchie, first, first and foremost. You know, as much as, you know, some people don't agree with his style of hash or whatever, what have you, I love that dude. He definitely knows an insane amount about hash culture and hash history and resin and although he has a different style than many people that you know maybe make similar hash to me i think you know mad respect to that dude for sure second one i mean i'm gonna say trichome heavy jibs for sure and then third one that's easy bro kushkirk garden of grease him and amanda up there fucking yeah you got the shirt on right now man killing it like he for me almost i have the most the most respect for him as far as farming practices, turning it all into solventless, super high quality sun-grown resin. Like, I really don't think I can think of a single other person that creates like that, has top to bottom, like nothing that I could be like, well, <laughs> it'd be better. Every time I'm like, well, it could be better because they'd do it like Kushkirk would do it. Like the whole farm he's got and just the whole like, holistic nature of how he does his cannabis is insane to me and take puts so much love into like everything like i have mad respect for him yeah yeah uh, i mean i've said it before they're awesome people you know before anything and like you said like i got the shirt on and I, it's funny man i don't rock a lot of like cannabis gear or anything but they're two really cool people so but yeah they're they're hard workers, man. You know, that's that's the other thing is that hell yeah, it's just like constant, constant work to maintain that kind of cycle. Yeah, so, no, I don't have the ability to do that. <laughs> totally, it's a, a lifestyle for sure. Oh you know? yeah, no, it's so it's, respect for sure. Yeah, definitely. And what kind of has become the standard of the show? If you could hear somebody else on here, who would you like to hear that you haven't heard? Ooh, hmm. That's a good question. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some a European hash maker would be cool. Like somebody from Spain or Morocco even, if you could find someone that maybe doesn't even have social media or anything, but just has existed and made like more traditional hash and 
right. is in that world of things. I think that could be super interesting for people to hear about, like that large scale production of hash and like how that all goes down and stuff. Yeah, no, um, I agree. Uh, Jeeps brought up, you know, doing one of the uh, Spanish guys, and I thought that would. Uh, yeah, I think there's a like, pretty big hash maker, and his nickname is El Gato. Okay. He'd be a good guy to interview. Dude's made like a shit ton of hash. Yeah. Like literally like tons and tons. I cannot even imagine honestly putting a number on like the grams of hash he's produced. Like right. insanity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I just getting getting, I guess, to do the in person thing and maybe it would have to change for, for that. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh it's definitely an idea that I'm kind of tossing around so yeah that's cool we'll we'll see what happens with that but i think it'd be interesting as well so again this is flynn from wooksaw winery as well as fully melted california i want to thank you again for your time for driving down here from where you were and just you know is there anything else that you wanted to say no, I just wanted to thank you for inviting me on the podcast and want to say it's been a great experience. I really enjoyed like sitting down with you and talking about, you know, what I love, which is hash. And I hope uh, I hope people found this interesting and found some value out of it for sure. Cool, man. Well, again, I appreciate you and thanks everybody for listening. Catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate and give us a review. Until next time.